It's a beautiful drive down for us from Billings this morning. If you don't know us, if you're just visiting or haven't been here a while, I'm not Kenny, um, though we may look alike. Uh, we're we're just uh, we're here as kind of an interim as uh, we're praying for uh, your next pastor and who that would be and who God's bringing. And I know that uh, Sam, your district superintendent for the family of churches that you belong to, the Foursquare, and and even uh, us up in Billings, our Foursquare Church is praying for uh, uh, who God may send here. And I know my son, who's the uh, kind of the regional director up that area of the watches over the churches of North Dakota and uh, Northern Wyoming. This is Northern Wyoming, but we kind of help Sheridan and uh, no Gillette, sorry Gillette, and a few others, and then part of Montana. He's also keeping his eyes open, who God may be bringing to you. So we're, we're praying for that and just know the next chapter of this church and what God wants to do. And uh, we're excited to be here. And uh, it's a beautiful drive this morning. We had down some snow. Luckily, it wasn't on the road. It just snowed north of here. Quite a bit. Beautiful snow in the mountains. It was only raining in Billings when we left. So it's good to be here. And we're just glad to be here anytime. It's a wonderful to come and join you. We're... Uh, we're just uh, going to, in this journey through the book of Jonah, and if, uh, in much of what I've learned, some people have said, gee, that's awesome, thanks, especially for bringing this to us and really enjoying it, but I want you to know so much of it is of what I'm sharing with you. I've gleaned from a lot of scholars, and especially Tim Keller, who has preached uh, through the book of Jonah many times and written a book about it, and he studied all the other scholars, and we've kind of along the way kind of lost this vision of what the book of Jonah is really about. We've kind of relegated it to a fairy tale and a whale of a tale and a man being swallowed by a whale and spit up on a beach, and we kind of keep it in that children's uh, Sunday school old flannel board lesson. Uh, but it's much more than that. It's a great book of the Bible. Some scholars have said it's, it is the parable of the prodigal son taught in the Old Testament. It is the very parallel to that. And we'll discuss that in the weeks ahead of where that is. But first, let me pray and just ask God uh, to be with us and uh, to reveal himself to us. Lord, thank you for your word. Lord, that First uh, Peter calls it uh, pure spiritual milk and that we're to desire it and eagerly want to eat of it and have it change our lives. We thank you for the power of your word, Lord, that this Bible, these scriptures, that we as Christians believe a crazy thing, that, that you speak to us through these things, that you reveal yourself, that you have um, had your hand in every word written and preserved in these 66 books of the Bible. And so, Lord, uh, as your obedient children, as we heard from Tommy this morning, uh, may through the hearing of your word, Lord, if you need to rearrange the furniture in our house, you need to help rid of some rotting, stinking things. And Lord, fill them with your righteousness that we may be like you. We give you that permission. We open our front door of our heart today to you. And thank you for your word. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Tommy, for bringing that word and, and here, listening to the Lord for, for us. Um, it seems like I want to say something, but I can't remember what it is before I do this. Uh, just that, oh yeah, I know now. Uh, I felt as I was worshiping and praying this morning here just right with you, that one of the reasons every church exists, and I hope that uh, this is part of your belief too, 
is that we exist to bring people who are far from God close to God. That's why we exist. We exist not just for ourselves, not just for being a little country club, not for ourselves just being uh, whole up and getting the word of God and, and being um, somehow feeling we're superior or more in touch with God than other people. But our whole purpose of why he fills us is so that we can reach others. And so I pray that the future of this church, its purpose in Cody, Wyoming, and in this area will bring people who this morning have no relationship with God or sitting at home or doing something different, and they're far from God, but they will be brought near to God by this church and all the churches in this town who profess Jesus Christ as Lord. And so may that be the future that is before you. May God bring that next pastor who will help mobilize you and make this church a place where people who want to learn about Jesus or see something that maybe Jesus has an answer for them that they'll feel welcome here and it'll be a place to come and that because of your love because of what will be preached from this pulpit area of the songs that will be sung of the prayers that will be prayed that people who are far from God will be brought in because he said the harvest is plentiful all the time the main problem is the workers are few and so may we be part of those workers that bring people far from God, close to God. So if you're here today visiting and you're uh, investigating this Jesus or who these Christians are, uh, we welcome you. And uh, may this word that we share today, which we believe as Christians is, is God's word to us, may it also speak to your hearts. All right, so a quick review in Jonah. Um, uh, now, first of all, remember that picture up there is a little bit of like what we see in our children's Bibles, uh, we have no, no way of knowing what kind of fish this was. They always seem to draw a whale because a whale seems the only thing to have a big enough mouth to swallow a man. Uh, but uh, we have no idea what fish it was. Was it a special created fish by God at that moment? And that it had special uh, air chamber inside that could keep Jonah alive for three days. We know this miracle almost most of us put out, like this can't be true, that this is too far gone. But when I first started this series, remember the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is a far greater miracle than a man staying three days alive in the sea in a special tomb in a way that God prepared for Jonah, but it brought him more life instead of death, just as the tomb of Jesus brought us more life instead of death. All right, so let's do a little review here quickly. Uh, next slide, we'll look at this. Um, then the sailors, we kind of went over this, but just a little review from last week, because they didn't quite to get, get it finished. It says, then the sailors said to each other, uh, come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. Remember, there's a giant storm going on. The sailors are trying to save the ship. They've got cargo. They've got passengers. And they're headed for Tarshish as far away from Nineveh as Jonah can get. Because the word of God came to Jonah and said, go preach to the Ninevites. But they were the terrorists of that day, the enemies of Israel. So he's trying to leave. So the sailors are trying to find out why is this storm upon us? This isn't a normal storm. They realize it's a supernatural storm. They cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? And from where are your people? And the brevity of the words in Jonah, four short chapters, lead us to believe every word, every sentence is very important. And so this just is an accumulation of four statements. We believe they are put there by the Lord himself, by the author of Jonah, by God speaking through the author of Jonah to say this is what defines every, every human being. 
what, what kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? Where is your country? And from what people are you? And he answered, I'm a Hebrew. I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Now you can see that uh, Jonah here. Uh, oh, let get my little pointer out here. Ah, there it is. Okay, you can see that this one starts off with, um, tell us response of what kind of work do you do? And the last question from the sailors is, from what people are you? But Jonah reverses it and starts with the last question first. He answers from what people he is, what race he is. I am a Hebrew. And then he goes to uh, what kind of work, where do you come from, where's your country? He never really goes into those. He just says, I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and dry land. And we talked about that in the next slide. These questions can be boiled down into these questions right now. What is your purpose? What is your place? And who are your people? So for you here this morning, what's the purpose? Why do you live? And hopefully it's beyond just what you do to pay the bills. Because as Christians, we have a higher calling. We have a higher calling to bring people who are far from God close to God. We have a calling to raise our families for the Lord. We have a, a calling to be light and salt in this town. We have a calling to uh, love as nobody else loves. So that's our purpose. Where is your place? You could say, uh, Cody, Wyoming is my place. And who are your people? That would be what's your race. Where have you come from? What is your descendants? Uh, what is your, if you've ever gone and gotten, uh, what is it called? Uh, something 23. You get all that testing, send in your saliva, and they'll tell you where you come from. People have been doing that and just shocked who they are. Um, I work, my assistant who works for me in Billings, um, at the church there at Faith Chapel. She's, her last name was Lopez. She swore she was mostly Spanish. She comes back about the majority of her inheritance is Greek in her, in her DNA. And so we're just all uh, flummoxed by that. And so we don't know what to are. So who are you? Or in other words, who do you worship? And so we kind of ended last week by saying, whose are you? We got to define ourselves by who we belong to more than our race and so our purpose here is who do we worship, who do we give ourselves to, and that's more important than where's our place and what is our race. All right, so let's go to the next slide. But there's nobody back there, I don't think. Is there? Hello. Maybe it's a small children. Oh, you can change it now. Okay, there we go. Okay, there we go. Okay. When loyalty to his people, and we said this a little bit last week, but it's so important. When the loyalty to his people and the loyalty to the word of God seem to be in conflict. In other words, God said, go to Nineveh, to the Assyrians and preach to them. But he loved his people, his nationality. Jonah chose to support his nation over taking God's love and message to the Ninevites. It reveals a shallow identity. And it was a challenge to all of us. Do we sometimes disobey God's word when it's in conflict in our lives because we choose our people or our place over obeying the word of God? All right. So let's go to the next one. It's shallow identity. Let's talk about this shallow identity a little bit more. Is, we may have the same struggle. Is God and his love your foremost fundamental layer, layer of your identity? God and his love for you, is that the bedrock of what defines you? Do we get or do we get our basic identity from God's love or from these things? From race, career, financial worth, family, human love. 
Where do we get our identity from? And I would say we probably all bounce back and forth. There's days when I'm, I'm in these things thinking my identity's here when really my identity has to be God's love and God's love for me. Carol and I had the um, great privilege yesterday of visiting a very sweet lady in Billings, Montana, who's in hospice care and cancer spread over her entire body. She's probably in her mid-50s. And she is, came to see me about a month or two ago, and she was really concerned about the assurance of her salvation. Would she really, how do you have that assurance that I will really be with the Lord and that if I'm going through this cancer and going to die, that I'll really be in his presence? And so we discussed that with her, talked about it's by faith, not by your works. It's the assurance and the hope we have in our faith in Jesus that what he says is true, that if we lose our life, we will find it. If we give him ourselves, he will usher us from this life into his presence. It's true when he says, don't fret, believe in God, believe also in me, for I have gone to prepare a place for you. I have prepared a place in my father's mansion where you'll be. And so yesterday we got to spend time with her and she's such a sweet lady and it helped us uh, as she's, is, is my identity based on my health? I didn't put health up there, but is, is, to her she was struggling our identity and we've met so many courageous Christians of late that um, I've had the privilege to walk with. I do a lot of the funerals at Faith Chapel in Billings and um, so many of them said, I'm not going to let the disease define me. Whatever my disease is, whatever my brokenness is in my life, even it's addictions, doesn't have to be health things, addictions, it's not going to define me. My identity is God loves me. I am his son and his, or his daughter, and I live for him. My purpose is to worship and live and serve him. All right, so we have the So shallow Christians, I, I, shallow Christian identities explain why professing Christians can be racist, greedy, materialists, addicted to pleasure, filled with anxiety, and prone to overwork. So that's how we, as Christians in the church, these things exist among us and in us because we're just like Jonah. We have a shallow identity. We define ourselves first and foremost when somebody says, who are you, by other things. Then we serve God. We love him. He loves me. I remember the story uh, shared by Brendan Manning in one of his books. It's supposed to be a true story. It happened in Northern Ireland that there was an old stage stop and they're waiting for the buggy, the stage to come by before automobiles. And they're all there waiting much more time than you never, very uncertain how fast the horses are traveling or, or the buggy's coming. And there was this uh, man just kneeled by the side of the road praying the whole time these other people are waiting for this um, uh, carriage to come. I guess we call it like a stagecoach in the Old West. And they're waiting to go to the next town to do their business. And this guy's just praying on this rock. And so finally, one of the guys, he just was just curious and uh, just wanted to say that he admired the man. He walked over to him and he said, man, I, I just have to admire you. You're so devout and so religious and you're so um, such a, a man of prayer. And so the man looked up and said, yes, he is very fond of me. And they put his head back down and prayed some more. And in that, that man identified clearly where he gets his identity from. He said, I exist, and the reason I'm praying 
and interacting with my Heavenly Father because I know he's fond of me. And that's why that identity, do we get it from the love of God for us? And that man's identity then drove his life. And so uh, all this can happen because it is not Christ's love, but the world's power, approval, comfort, and control that are the real roots of our self-identity. The world puts a price tag on things. Do you have enough in your IRA? Do you have what, what's going to happen in the future? And so we're always kind of battling that instead of resting in the Lord. Okay, let's go to the next slide. Now, the shallow identity prevents us from truly seeing ourselves. Jonah had a privileged position as a prophet in the covenant community, but he was blind to the fact that he was self-absorbed. In other words, I'm not going to go preach God's word. I, I, I don't want to do that. He was bigoted. He didn't like the Ninevites, the Assyrians. And he was foolish. He said, I thought I could run from God. And so our shallow identity prevents us from seeing sometimes where we are really struggling and where our identity isn't right and how we are basing and laying all our chips and bets in an area that, or all our eggs in baskets other than the basket of Jesus. And so I'm just asking today, as you re-identify, re-identify yourself, bring yourself into alignment as I do that, that I am identified now by my love of Christ. What's my purpose is to worship and serve him because he is so fond of me that it may reveal to us places in our lives where we've been walking in darkness and not light and places where you might find yourself repenting and asking God's forgiveness. And if that happens, that's the greatest result that you can get from really grasping where you get your identity from. Okay, let's go on. Now, let's go further in Jonah chapter 1. This terrified them. Uh, they, so he said, I'm a Hebrew, and I worship uh, the God who created the seas and, the, and, and all of this that we're experiencing. So that's how Jonah answered. And so now the sailors are terrified, and they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, what should we do to you to make this sea calm down for us? And Jonah answers, pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. Jonah knew the answer. I know that this is my fault, that this great storm has come upon you. And we talked about Two weeks ago, how every sin can produce a storm in our lives. And Jonah's sin is running from God. Instead, the men... So he said, throw me over, but this word's important. Instead, the men did their best to row back to the land. And we talked a little bit about this last week. The common grace that even the non-Christians can act better than the Christians in times of crisis because of the fact that God pours his grace upon all people to help us make society function. And so Jonah's acting like the jerk here and running from God, throw me over, but now the men want to save his life and not throw him overboard. It would have been an easy answer, but they said, wow, that's the nuclear option. We don't want to do that. That's the industrial strength solution. We would rather solve this another way than murder a man. And so they are acting very righteous and good. But they could not for the sea. They tried to row back to land, but they could not for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord. Please, Lord. And so this is the Lord who now they know that 
Jonah worships because he said, I'm a Hebrew and I worship the Lord who's created the heavens and the earth and the seas. And they said, and so now they're praying. These pagan, multi-theistic sailors who worship many different gods because they were all praying to their different gods during the storm. If you remember reading from chapter one, they say, now they pray to Yahweh, the Lord God of covenant God of the Jews. Do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man for you. Lord, have done as you have pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard. You can probably just hear it, right? One, two, three. You know, I, I don't know or however what their language was, all right? And threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. It was like the sacrifice of Jonah calmed the monster of the storm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Notice that they feared the storm, terrified them. Down here, they end up fearing the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice. They had a worship service on the deck of the ship and offered vows to him. Let's talk a little bit more about this. Okay, next slide. All right, throw me overboard. First of all, is Jonah repenting? A lot of people say, ooh, Jonah repented, and, uh, and so he's saying, yeah, it's my fault. I need to pay the price for this. Or is he saying, I deserve death for my sins against God? Or is he saying, I'd rather die than obey God and go to Nineveh. Just kill me. It's probably somewhere a combination of these two bottom statements. I deserve death because I can see the storm was brought by me. But I'd also rather die than to go to Nineveh and obey God's word and love these people who I absolutely hate and who are our enemy. Okay, let's go to the next slide. Now, it's very clear from the scholars reading it in the original Hebrew that he's not repenting. He's not using any of the language for repentance we find in the Old Testament. Especially, think of David in Psalm 51. Against you, Lord, I have sinned. Against you only, I have broken your law. He's not saying any of those things. He's just saying, throw me overboard. He doesn't mention God in any of his statements. Just throw me overboard. It's because of me. He doesn't turn to God. Nothing is said in a repentant way. It does seem his conscience is being awakened for the lives of the other men. That he's kind of going, okay, it's better for me to die than this whole ship to go down and all these lives to be lost. So he's got something is starting to churn in him, a consciousness that cares about other people and not just his own neck. And that up to this point, it's been, I'm not going to Nineveh. I'm out of here. And he just cared about himself. And now God is working here to reveal a future sacrifice. Let's go to the next slide. All right, now Jonah and Jesus. Let's talk a little bit about what Jesus says about Jonah because he is one of the most quoted prophets by Jesus of all of them. So to Jesus, the book of Jonah was a key to his coming and explaining who he is. So in Matthew 12, then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. In other words, prove to us that you are the Messiah. He answered, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. 
The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now something greater than Jonah is here. Now, Jesus is assuming these guys read all four chapters of Jonah. We're just in the first chapter. We know that in chapter 3, the word of God comes again to Jonah. And then Jonah goes to Nineveh. He preaches and the Ninevites repent. And he said, you guys, I am here greater than Jonah. I am the true prophet, the Messiah sent from the Father. I am the Son of God. And you're not repenting. But even the evil Ninevites repented at the preaching of Jonah. So this generation is going to have troubles because Nineveh has the ability to stand up and judge you because you didn't respond to God's word and to God's presence among you as much as Nineveh did. Let's go to the next slide. This is another statement about Jonah. and uh, Well, not about Jonah, but uh, about this sacrifice of Jonah being thrown overboard and the sea calming. And notice that Jesus talks in a similar way here. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. So in the throwing of Jonah over the boat, and the sea goes calm, and the people have a worship service on the deck of the boat, it was an early shadow and type of the sacrifice that Jesus would be, would be for all of us. He would calm the raging storm of death. He would cause calm the judgment do us all. He would calm the punishment that was due to us. And so Jesus said, just like Jonah was a sacrifice that saved the lives of all those people, I have come not to be served but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. The original Hebrew in this word is a preposition, ransom for many. The original Hebrew is, is defined easily by saying, and I will die for you. That's what it means in almost every context in the Old Testament, those words. Even though the New is written in Greek, that preposition still transfers across that I will die for you. Okay, let's go on. So we're talking a little bit about that. So let's talk about true love. At this point, we're just going to pause in this first chapter of Jonah before we go on to him being swallowed by the, the whale and talk about this sacrifice and this ocean that come because God here is trying to reveal to us some aspects of what real love is, which we will completely see in the coming of Jesus. But this is a foreshadow, something that should stir our hearts, that we see Jesus in the midst of Jonah. We as Christians believe a crazy thing, that every page of this book reveals Jesus, is pointing to Jesus, and Jesus is the center of our lives, and therefore um, it, it, it speaks of his future love for us. So true love, let's just talk a little bit about true love, or agapo, or agape in, in the Greek, agape love, anybody heard that term, agape love? All right, so that's true sacrificial giving love, it says, true love meets the needs of the loved one no matter the cost to oneself. So in a way, Jonah, even though his heart isn't perfectly good, he's demonstrating that true love. I am going to meet the needs of the people on this boat to save their lives, even if it costs me my life. All life-changing love is some kind of substitutionary sacrifice. I put down an example of parenting because we have so many children in here, and we, I see this at a church that really loves your kids, and it's awesome. Uh, to see that. I just heard last night on the news as I was getting out of the car that there's a lady in Uganda that just gave birth to her 44th child. 
And so she really loves kids, okay? After the, she only has 34 of them still surviving. She had multiple births, but after the 30, uh, after this latest one, her husband abandoned her, uh, which doesn't surprise us in some ways, but uh, what a burden this lady has. So you can tell she likes kids. And uh, uh, she holds the record, they think, of the most children ever born. Now, uh, let's talk, oh, why did I say that? Oh yeah, about parenting. So. Let me just tell you what parenting, think about parenting for all of you. Is that for 18 years, that used to be when kids move out. So let's say for 28 years, um, you, 28 years, you, uh, you give of yourself. You sacrifice so they can have. You spend time reading to your children. You spend time cooking for your children. You spend time talking to your children, especially when they're toddlers and babies, holding them, nursing them, cradling them, giving them security. And if we don't spend that time with them, our children are raised uh, with insecurities and emotional problems, and they don't function well. It takes true parenting love is sacrificial love. We sacrifice our lives. We lay down many of our hobbies, things we'd love to do, time we'd like to spend in other places because we live to raise our kids. We live to pour love into them and sacrifice our lives for them. All good, true parenting is sacrificial. You give up something so that your child may receive something. I know that for Carol and I's generation, our, both our dads were in World War II and they came out of the Depression and our moms too. And they worked hard because they said, we want our children not to experience that type of poverty, that type of barely making it. And my mom lived in extreme poverty in northern New Mexico. And I, I, even some meals, I don't know where, if she, how many she missed. She never talked about it. It was kind of so painful. But I always would get it between the lines when she talked. And so uh, they worked hard because they said never, and they wanted to provide for our children. So they sacrificed a lot. Maybe became workaholics as a result of that, which isn't good. But ultimately, all parents want their children to do even better above and beyond them. Not talking financially, but for all of us in this room, to know more about Jesus, to love Jesus more, to go further with the kingdom, to be a greater light and salt in the world than even we are. That is our our dream for them. That's why you sacrifice and bring them to church and all the things that you do. So that's true sacrificial love. Let's go to the next slide. Now, uh, Jonah is hurled in the sea to save the others. He sacrifices himself. The first step in coming to our senses is when we start thinking of somebody else besides ourselves. All of us can have a narcissistic streak where we think just of who we are. But when we start coming to our senses and start behaving in true love is when we start thinking of somebody else than just ourselves. That is Jonah here. He's now, we can see a crack happening in his hardened heart. We can see something being peeled away from the, the bitterness against the Ninevites in his heart. Something is changing because he's thinking of somebody else. Next, Jonah is guilty of sin and really is no Jesus. We know that. But Jonah is a type and a symbol of the sacrifice of innocent Jesus. Tim Keller says, true love meets the needs of the loved one no matter the cost to oneself. All life-changing love is some kind of substitutionary sacrifice. All life-changing love is some kind of substitutionary sacrifice. So people who have been in marriages that are very hard, but they sacrifice and they hang in there. 
That's the kind of love that changes the people around us and changes all of us. We've seen that in our own family. Substitutionary love is so impactful on us because we are created in God's image and that's how he loves. So when somebody sacrifices for you, gives up something in their lives to provide for you, it impacts us because we're created in God's image and that's how God loves. God's always been in the business of sacrificial love. Let's go next slide. All right, so let's go on further in the chapter. Instead, the men that, oh, I t we read this a little bit. Okay, uh, feared the Lord. Oh, no, let's go on. We already read that. Sorry, that got du duplicated in there. Let's talk about the sailors a little bit. At first, the fear of the storm, but now fear of the Lord. Talked about that. The key here is that the sailors use the covenant name Yahweh. When they say the Lord, let's make a sacrifice to the Lord, or Lord, forgive us for killing this man, innocent. They said he was an innocent man, but he wasn't innocent. He was innocent in the visual sense. They didn't see him commit a crime or a sin, but he wasn't innocent in his disobedience to God. They said, Lord, forgive us for this. And then at the end, we were reading there, they did a sacrifice to the Lord. The one thing we don't know, unless your Bible's in Hebrew today, is that they're using the word Yahweh, or the author uses the word Yahweh here, because the sailors are now speaking to God in his covenantal name, in his relationship name, that they have some kind of relationship with God. Something has churned in their heart, and they've turned from believing in all their pagan gods into believing now in the true God of Jonah. So Yahweh denotes that personal saving relationship. No longer is Jonah's God another tribal deity, but they see the greatness of who God really is. Okay, let's go on. So are the sailors converted to worship Yahweh? Or is this a foxhole conversion? What's a foxhole conversion? What? Yeah, nobody's an atheist in the foxhole. Or some people call this the jailhouse conversion, right? Uh, I'm in jail. Oh, God, I believe. Get me out of here and I'll serve you, right? The foxhole. Lord, if I can get out of this sticky situation, the bullets flying over my head, the bombs bust, busting around me, God, I'll serve you with all my life. So is that what the sailors are doing? They threw him over and now they're worshiping the Lord. Is it just a momentary uh, conversion that's, that's wanting to appease God because um, this great raging storm? The hint is that when did they turn to God? Before the storm had passed or after the sea had calmed down? They turned to God after the sea had calmed down. They worshiped God after Jonah was thrown overboard. They set up a service on the deck and they made sacrifices to Yahweh. So it is not a foxhole conversion. The author and God's intent in the book of Jonah is to show us that these sailors became believers in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. No Jesus on the scene yet, but now through faith, they're believing this God of Jonah, who has the power to calm the seas or to bring the raging storms, is the God who we should serve. Otherwise, if it was a foxhole, they would have said, wow, oh, we're going to serve you, we're going to get rid, we're going to follow this God. And as soon as the sea stopped, they would have went back to their own way of worship. But instead, they have a worship service to God. So it seems clear to the scholars who study this in the original languages that this is a true conversion. It's been debated by theologians over time, but the majority say 
these sailors have come to know God. A conversion in an Old Testament sense of putting their trust and faith in this God who has created all and has chosen the Jewish people to be his chosen people. And they are now going to worship that God and be believers too and be converted to, to Judaism in a way. All right? Now, so... Foxhole conversions go away after the storm cease, after you get out of the hole, after the jail bars open up, you know, or after the jaws of life spring you from the car and you're safe and you're going to live. Then sometimes we forget the Lord that we cried out to. So the sailors are not seeking God for what he can do for them, but are worshiping him for the greatness of who he is. All right, let's go on. The irony here, this is incredible, the irony. I hope you see it. It was hard for me to see it first. But Jonah was fleeing God because he did not want to go and show God's truth to the wicked pagans in Nineveh. But that's exactly what he ends up doing. Jonah's anti-missionary activities have ironically resulted in the conversion of non-Israelites. C. Timmer says, that's a quote from him. So what God's going to do, he will do. Can you believe that Jonah's running because he doesn't want to share God with pagans? And in the midst of his running, pagans are saved. God still uses Jonah even in his rebellion. And God does what God's going to do. And there's not much we can do to interrupt that because he'll even use us in our failures if we, uh, even without our permission because God is still out to bring people who are far from God close to God. So the irony here, the thing he didn't want to do, he ends up doing. Next, next one. Okay, so the end of chapter 1. Uh, now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and nights. So this is the last verse of chapter 1. I want to talk here a little bit about the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. God provided, or in the Greek, it could, uh, sorry, in the Hebrew, it could also be translated God appointed. So God appointed a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. Two big places in Jonah that God provides something or appoints something. One is a big fish. Does anybody know what the second one is? Hope you've been reading through the book of Jonah. I hope you read it every week. What's the? The plant. The plant. So we'll see that in later chapter of Jonah. But Jonah's out overlooking Nineveh. And God appoints a plant to grow over him and provide him shade. So what the book of Jonah shows us is a doctrine in the church, it's been with Christians ever since Jesus came, is the sovereignty of God. Let's go to the next slide. I got a, some pictures there of the sovereignty of God. And here's the, here's the fish that God appoints to swallow Jonah. Here's the plant that grows over Jonah later as he looks over Nineveh. Okay, I couldn't find an, a very good painting of that. <laughs> That's just kind of a little, a little primitive kind of thing there. But... Here is Norman Geisler, one of the great theologians of our generation. Sovereignty is God's control over his creation. So sovereignty, the doctrine of sovereignty, is God has control over his creation. God is sovereign. So dealing with his governance over it. So we can see God, he's control over his creation. He governs over it. Sovereignty is God's rule over all reality. So God appointed the fish and the plant. One of the big pictures in Jonah that we don't want to miss is God is sovereign. You may have heard that before, but what does that really mean? And ultimately, it means he is in control over all of his creation. So he appoints this fish and he appoints this plant. And we see that this doctrine of sovereignty 
is one of the big places we get it from. God can use, tomorrow, God could use a mule deer to walk up to you while you're hunting and talk to you, you know, and say, do you really want to shoot us? Is that really what you want to do? You know, God has control over his creation. I know many times as a hunter, I've prayed, oh, God, send an elk this way, and I haven't seen one, you know, and I wonder, God, are you there? But uh, uh, I've asked him to provide, but it's usually to meet my needs, not his needs and me. Okay, and every time I've come home without an animal, it usually teaches me more about God than when I come home with an animal. All right, so uh, just know that. So let's go on. I just hope you, you probably have heard that, that term, the sovereignty of God, God's control over everything. It used to be more of a mainstay in the church years ago, but uh, it's there in the book of Jonah. All right, so Jonah's prayer. Jonah goes into the deep, and uh, he's thrown over, and we start chapter 2. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord. And he answered me, from deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help. And you listened to my cry. So now God, now Jonah is calling out from the Lord as his fish has swallowed him. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled around me. All the waves and the breakers swept over me. Next one. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again towards your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. The roots of the mountains, the, to the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. So in his sinking into the sea, and then in uh, all these things are going to his mind, and when he finally gets swallowed by this fish, he begins to recite this prayer of what he was going through as he was sinking into the depths. Uh, this word here, this little phrase, uh, the roots of the to the roots of the mountain I sank down to the earth beneath barred me. The roots of the mountain into the Hebrew was always referred to as a prison. That you sent me to a prison I could never escape from, and those and that's why the second line there says uh, they barred me in forever. But you, Lord, delivered me. Okay, let's go on. Okay, so that's his and here's the end of his prayer. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. And then the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. That would have been something to watch, right? To see, was he covered in a kind of a slime? Did he have to crawl out of like, ugh, did he smell? I don't know. But uh, God, in response to this prayer of Jonah, he spits him out. So let's go on. All right, the prayer. Uh-oh. Is that okay? Some have called the fish swallowing Jonah an example of a severe mercy. Okay, go ahead. I think this is going to show. Okay. A severe so think about this term severe mercy. Severe mercy. Severe mercy events. All right. Severe because they are extreme and very hard. This was extreme. He's going to die in the sea. Mercy, because they are used by God to make us into better disciples and yield more good than we could ever imagine. So this was severe. Jonah's going to die, thrown overboard, 
but in mercy swallowed by a fish. And he now turns to God and begins to pray and seems to be on the progress of repentance. Okay, next. Severe mercy for Jonah. He is going to kiss death before his eyes are opened. All right. Let's go on the next slide. Oh, yeah. Okay, disobedience to God takes radical treatment to remedy. One of the uh, scholars said, we need drastic measures at times that God takes to bring us back to him, to be the treatment that will bring the remedy to our rebellion. And so many times there's drastic treatment. I don't know how many of you here gave your hearts to the Lord in a severe mercy. Was there severe mercy going on in your life that this was a severe situation and God showed up in mercy? I know God has done that for Carolyn and I numerous times in our lives, but specifically it was used in, when we were just married. We went through a severe mercy and God, it was very hard and in his mercy he showed up and brought deliverance for our entire family. It was awesome. All right, let's go on. Go ahead. Okay, down. Yeah, thank you. Down. Jonah has been depicted as descending. Okay, he went down into the ship. So here we go at the first verse, chapter 3. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed to Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship to the port. Down into the ship. So he paid his fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. So that's way back in the first part of the chapter. Okay. All this stuff is about Jonah going down, down, down. Let's go to the next slide. Go ahead. Just pull it out. Down. Jonah has been depicted as descending all the time. Down into the depths of the ship. Then the mariners were afraid. They cried out and they threw cargo off. But Jonah had gone down into the inner parts of the ship and lain down and was fast asleep. Then for you, cast me into the deep, into the heart of the sea. The waters closed over me and took my life. The deep surrounded me. That's from his prayer. Deep, down. All these words uh, are depicting in these first two chapters of Jonah his status. He's always going down, down, down. Ever since he said, I'm not going to go to Nineveh. I'm going to run from the presence of the Lord. The whole trajectory is down and going into the deep. All right, let's go on. Jonah going down, 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 not until he is all the way down, stripped of his own buoyant self-sufficiency, was deliverance possible. So do you ever hear that people don't convert from addictions until they hit rock bottom? That's what's going on. That's where that whole, this is, it's not just a theory we make up. We know people experience it. But Jonah himself has now hit rock bottom. He goes to the roots of the mountains and is barred in there, as we read in his prayer. So, when I love this phrase by Peter Craigie. He said, not until he's all the way down, stripped of his own buoyant self-sufficiency, I can do this on my own, was deliverance possible. It's, it is not the bottom that changes everything, but the prayer at the bottom. It's, if you don't pray at the bottom, if you're not calling out to God in the bottom, things don't change. It's not the bottom that changes you. It's your reaction when you're at the bottom, when you lose all your own self-buoyancy. Now, we do not realize that Jesus is all we need until Jesus is all we have. Will you read that with me together? We do not realize that Jesus is all we need until Jesus is all we have. And that's a severe mercy. When God brings us to the point that says, I only have you, Jesus, I think of, uh, I told this lady yesterday who's going to die in the next few days from this cancer that we visited. I said, if the only thing on your lips that you can say in the end 
is one word. Make that word Jesus. Because that's all you will have at that moment. And he will take your hand from this life and usher you into his presence. All right. Let's go to the next one. Okay. Uh, hidden flaws are never seen by us as long as life is going well. Failure can let us go uh, let go, sorry, failure can let us go of unimportant and grab onto what's important. Failures can produce powerful leaders. Abraham Lincoln, he lost eight different elections before becoming president. Okay, think of Joseph in the Bible. He was thrown into a pit by his brothers, sold into slavery, lived in prison, falsely accused, and he became a great, great leader of Egypt. David, King David, he was uh, maligned, tried to be killed by Saul, had to flee, live in the desert, uh, but he became the great, great king. Think of Peter, followed the Lord, said, Peter, Peter said, I'll never deny you. Denied the Lord three times. God reinstated him. Severe mercies, failures are what allow us to see what, what's wrong with us and when has failure made you better. I think for all of us, Failure has the ability to make us better. There are venture capitalists. You know what those are? Those are people that invest in your idea for a new business. So I have good news for you. Well, no, I don't. I'm not one of those. Uh, they have money, and they're looking for the next big thing. But there is a group of venture capitalists that lend $10 million to people wanting to start new businesses. But they have one caveat. They don't lend it to anybody unless that person has failed and lost at least $2 million. They said, we're not going to, no, have you ever lost any money? No, we're not going to give you $10 million. Have you ever failed in the business? No, all my businesses have succeeded. We're not lending you. This group, true story, this group will not lend anybody who has not failed and failed hard because they realize we can invest in you because you learn at the bottom. Because you learn, you see your failures, you see your blind spots, you see everything you thought you were is not true. You see that you aren't self-sufficient, that you have to work as a team, those kind of things. And so the world even works that way. Okay, let's go on. All right, we're going to stop there. And uh, we'll talk about grace next week and the grace that he came to know. So thank you for any questions, any comments. I hear that Pastor Kenny used to do that, right? There's a time to talk or... Anything you want to say? Sorry, it's a little, yeah. Anyway, I love this book. Carol and I have been challenged. Uh, I preached through this uh, last spring a little bit in a similar way, kind of different this, but much similar similarity. And just this last few weeks, Carol and I have been challenged. So we saw an attitude in our heart that was much like Jonah's. We wanted something because these people, we felt certain people had disobeyed God. We were hoping it wasn't going to work out for them in the future. That they would say, we would say, oh, it's not going to work. Oh, I, yeah, we hope they don't do well so they can see and come back to obey God. But all of a sudden, my wife says, uh, wait a minute, isn't that a little bit like Jonah? He didn't want to go to the Ninevites. He wanted them to pay the price. He wanted them to sink. He wanted them to go down without the mercy of God. And we, I had to go, oh, my gosh, I have the same attitude in my heart that Jonah had, that I don't want good for people. I don't want to provide sacrificial love. I don't want to uh, preach that God can forgive them and wish the best for them. And so um, we've been challenged by that. Well, let's, uh, any comments? Anybody want to say anything? Anybody want to be like, worship team's coming back? I don't know how big the fish are around here, but let's try to catch one big enough. Yes, Misha. 
Yes, the sovereignty of God, though he has control over every cell in our bodies, everything controlled, where is the sovereignty of God to hear our prayers? How do you answer that? Yeah, Lance. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, look, boy, we remember we had this guy in a ship, and he turned us to the real God. We saw the power of this God. So I remember a man that brings up point, Lance. I remember one of the great pastors I've admired over the years. He said to me, he said, I've always ministered more in my neighborhood when I ministered out of my need than ever my sufficiency. He said he saw more neighbors come into a relationship with God and want to know about his God when he'd go to a neighbor and say, will you come over and help me? Will you, uh, there's an emergency, can you watch my kids? He would call the neighbor and say, I can't get home when the kids are getting off the bus. I, there's an emergency, can you watch my kids? And he said, when I always had vulnerabilities, when I always uh, failed, uh, it was not necessarily failed, but when I always needed somebody, I wasn't self-sufficient, I saw my neighbors come closer to God than when I would be self-sufficient and say, I've got the answers for them. That when I would be part of the person asking for help. And so, can you imagine the sailors, that same thing? We remember a man who led us to the Lord because he ran out of his self-sufficiency. He ran out of that. Yeah. Okay. God is good, yes. That's good. I hope you heard that. You said when the time's tough, it's God gives us that faith to know that God is good. Jesus brings us that. Yeah, the sovereignty of God. When we pray and things don't change, then we've got to believe the sovereignty of God is still at play. And he has something bigger that's going to happen, and this is a severe mercy. It's tough, but ultimately what we learn and how we be perfected and purified by this fire will produce more in us than what we're asking for. Because he knows that in us. I think of your husband, Jess, who suffers those headaches and all that sickness every day. That somehow has severe mercy being in there. God's mercy is being poured and perfecting him to even be more like him. All right. Well, let me pray and then we'll close with a song. Lord, thank you uh, for your sovereignty in our lives. That you have control over us. That, Lord, um, we see even in Jonah's running... He still brought pagans to worship you. That, Lord, we see your heart for the world, for the lost, for those that worship other gods, that find their identity outside of you. Lord, may our identities not be um, shallow. May our identities be in you. May what defines us is your love for us and our love for you and our service and purpose to glorify you. Lord, um, remove the sins in our lives that keep us from following you. That, Lord, if we're blind to our own failures in our shallow identity, may um, these days ahead, even this week, you reveal, may they bubble to the surface that we may repent and have them removed from us as far as the east is from the west. And that, Lord, you would transform us into your image. Thank you, Lord, that... Uh, we live with a God who sometimes allows us to hit rock bottom so that we can turn to you and know you and walk with you. And Lord, that may we all know without having to go through trials, 
that Jesus is all we need. And when there's nothing else, we just rely on you and your love and your presence and your direction for us. Bless the, all the parents in this room who give sacrificial love. All true love, Lord, is sacrificial. You demonstrated that in the cross. And in a way, you showed that by Jonah, by making him a sacrifice in the ocean to save the sailors on that ship. And Lord, may we be people of sacrificial love. It will impact those in Cody, Wyoming, if they see our sacrificial love. Help Carol and I exhibit that sacrificial love in Billings. We love you, Lord. In your name, amen. Amen, amen.